Well, good morning, Trinity Church. Second service. I'm still trying to figure out where you're all sitting. I see you though, all right? Um, what This is like the best way that I could spend part of my Father's Day, being up here with my dad. So will you give my dad a warm welcome? Thank you. Dad, this is, well, sort of the original Billborn. His dad was Billborn also. Um, so I call him the original Billborn. And uh, my mom and dad moved to Trinity Church in 2009. They've been here serving and an active part of this fellowship for 10 years. My dad retired in 2009, um, but he, he doesn't call it that because uh, that's like a bad word. So he spends his time serving the Lord. That's always been his heart. And uh, I'm excited to share this story with you today. Um, my dad and I are going to bring that. So we're looking at... Excited to be here. Thank you, Dad. Um, we're looking at and introducing a new series on parables that we're going to be walking through, seven of them. You'll see them down the walls uh, this summer. And um, when we think about parables, this, the parables are the way that Jesus taught. He used stories to bring truths to people that were, first of all, a little hard to understand, and second of all, that might be missed. And so he made up these stories of fictional characters to emphasize truths so that people could actually grasp them. And the way he did that is he played with human emotions. He created humans' hearts and their emotions. And so he told stories that would just bring us in to that emotion and then convict us or invite us in. And so that's what the parables are. And we're going to look at seven of them. Uh, and um, we're going to start today with a story about two sons and a loving father. And so um, our now what for today is come home to the father's loving embrace and celebrate the joy of forgiveness. And we're in the gospel of Luke in your Bible. If you brought it today, Luke is the third account of Jesus' life, and it was written by Luke. If you don't have your Bible, we're also going to put the words on the screen so you can follow along. Luke was a doctor. He traveled extensively with the Apostle Paul, helping to bring the message of Jesus and establish churches as this message extended um, from Jerusalem outward. And he wrote his book, he says, because he wants people to be assured of the truth of what they've heard about Jesus. That's why he wrote. One of his prominent themes is that Jesus is a king of a new kingdom and that that kingdom, the Jews and the Gentiles, were welcomed on equal standing. And he paid particular note in his story of the way that Jesus welcomed sinners. And he talked about how the people who Jesus was welcoming, they were excited they were rejoicing, they were being healed, they were um, accepting him, and the religious leaders were offended, they were pushing back, they were rejecting him, and eventually they would choose to destroy him, and we know where that ended up. And so this is the story of Luke, the way Luke tells the story of Jesus, and our passage fits right into that theme in, uh, in Luke 15. So the immediate context 
what's been going down is that Jesus loves sinners and the religious leaders do not. That's what we're going to see. And that's what inspires this story that Jesus is going to tell. So if you look in Luke 15, verse 1, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And then Jesus told them this parable. And Jesus actually told them three parables to confront their muttering and their misunderstanding of why Jesus is welcoming sinners. Okay, so the first parable, all in Luke 15, is the story of the lost sheep. And the second parable is the story of a lost coin. And what happens is they search with everything they've got. And when they find it, they throw a big party because the lost has been found. And this is the application. You can't miss this, is that lost being found in the kingdom of heaven is sinners repenting. Because he says this, there is more rejoicing in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, over one sinner that repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So when you hear lost and found, you need to hear sinner repenting. That's what heaven rejoices over. And that's why Jesus loves sinners. So um, here we come to the younger son. Uh, Verse 11 of Luke 15. Jesus continued. This is his third story uh, parable now in this series. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth with wild living. So by outward appearances, this son has everything. He has a wealthy father. He's got a home. He's got everything. But he chooses to do this unheard of thing of basically saying to his dad, give me everything. I want it now. And, and Jesus tended to exaggerate some of the characters and their actions in the parables to kind of give a <gasps> effect. Like this would have gone over to the hearers of this. That is like so dishonoring to the father. This was dishonoring to him. And so the, the son says, give it all to me. It's like him saying, I wish you were dead now. I want nothing to do with you or this family that's what his, the son was doing, and that's the way those hearers would have, would have heard it. It was unspeakable what he, what he asked for, but the father gives it to him. And it says that um, he goes far, far away then. He gathered it all together. He went far away, and it says he squandered his wealth in wild living. And that's all it says. It doesn't tell us all that he did. But we, we can only imagine that wild living doesn't look very good. It's, it's sinful, right? It's, it's kind of everything that he's got, he's going to give it. And what we find out is that it's, he is a hedonist, right? He's seeking pleasure. He's got all this money. He's just going to go after pleasure and just waste it all on, on whatever brings him joy and pleasure. And so what we find in this first... Um, part of the parable is that the younger son 
was a sinner lost in immorality. And that's in your notes today. The younger son is a sinner lost in immorality. Immorality is simply a sin. It's, it's, it's sin that breaks God's moral law, right? Immoral, breaks his law. And uh, this son would have been raised with all these laws. He would have been raised with the Ten Commandments that tell him these are the laws. And so, you know, we, we know about do not kill, do not commit adultery, uh, don't lie, don't um, covet. But one of them is honor your father and mother. So he dishonored his father and mother. So he broke. He was a sinner lost in immorality. And you wonder, how did he get there? Did he just one day just go off the deep end? And the scriptures show us this picture of how a person gets to that point. And I'd like you to look there with me. All our immorality will eventually lead anyone who, who just gives themselves to it to go astray. Look, look at what James says. James is Jesus' brother. He was a leader in the Jerusalem church. So he's teaching um, the Christians in Jerusalem. And he says this. Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then, after that desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. And so Jesus is kind of introducing us to the full-grown stage of that, right? But all of us, all of us um, are in danger of that if we don't do something about our own sin, okay? And um, we're going to see how we respond to that. The, the Bible says that um, for all of us have gone astray, right? We've turned our own way, um, and it also says that we are dead in our sins. So this is, we are dead when we're in our sins. But it says, but we can be made alive in Christ Jesus. That's what the Bible says. So we're dead in our sins. This son was definitely dead. And the father's even going to call him that in a little bit. So going on, the question is, what will it take to bring an end to this destruction of sin? Right? You can only imagine this wild living left awake of destruction. We know that it destroyed the relationship of the father and with his older brother. But we can only imagine, because we know that sin not only destroys the sinner, but it destroys the people who come in contact with the sinner. And isn't home the worst place that happens? The most destruction of our sins kind of happens with the people we love. And so that's what we see here. And so the son repents. Now remember, what are these three parables about? When the lost is found, it's about the sinner repenting. So Jesus has laid this pattern, and he says that happens in heaven, and now he's giving us an earthly story of a sinner repenting. And um, so if you continue on, in Luke 15, verse 14, it says, After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach 
with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I'll go back to my father and I'll say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. Repentance is turning toward God and away from sin. And so we see this picture of the son turning towards his father. First, it started in his memory, right? Oh, yeah. I remember my father. I remember my home. And so he, he, at the end of himself, he turns towards the father. My question is, what led the son to turn toward his father? What led the son to repent? And what leads us to repent? And the Bible answers that question and says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And so that's in Romans 2. Verse 4, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is teaching, he's writing this letter to Romans, and he, in, ver, in chapter 1, he just says, sin is really bad, and you're all really bad sinners. And he just paints this terrible picture of humankind in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, he reminds us, but the kindness of God leads us to repentance. And so I want to think, and I just want to point out two kindnesses of God in this story, and then I'm going to hand it over to my dad to introduce you to the Father. The first is the kindness of the famine. You remember it says there's a famine in that whole land, and he began to be in need. And it was in that needful place that he remembers the father, right? He remembers his father. Sometimes we resist those things in our lives where we are needy and we're bankrupt and we're broken. And that is the very kindness of God that will lead us to repentance. It's reaching the end of ourselves and realizing that on our own, we make a wreck of our lives. That is the kindness of God. And I want to remind you in the context is that he's in this place because of his sin. Okay, not all suffering is because of our sin. Job tells us that. But in this situation, he's suffering because he left home. And then when the kindness comes through this famine, he doesn't have his dad's provision, does he? And nobody will give him anything. So he's utterly bankrupt. That's the kindness of God that leads him to remember and to go back home. And that leads us to repentance. Is it possible that you might be experiencing the kindness of God in your life right now? Maybe there's some kind of sin. Maybe it's hidden and it, you're miserable inside and you realize things are starting to span beyond my own control. I'm going to lose it. That's the kindness of God. Before the destruction is too great, God's saying, come home. And it's the whole story of the Bible. 
All of the, the prophets in the Old Testament are God saying to his people, Israel, come back, turn back to me. I will be gracious. I will forgive. I'll be merciful. And, but God allows it to get really bad so that people will turn back to him. And in Romans 1, this um, chapter that Paul wrote, it says God gave him over to their sin. God gave the sinners over to their sin. He lets it get really bad so that his kindness will lead them to repentance. The second kindness is the son remembers his father's reputation of kindness. So he turns and he remembers, my dad is merciful. He provides for all his servants. There's going to be food there. He's a, he's, he's a good steward. I should go home. And he had this sense of, my dad won't reject me. But little did he know the heart of his father. Good morning. Great to be here. There'll be no stories that I'll tell about my son because he has a platform where he can get even. And so we don't, we, we don't want to do that. And also my grandson told me yesterday about something new with Apple and iPhone, a new operating system or something. And I want you to know I have the latest. It's called iCard. <laughs> the compassionate father, Luke fifteen twenty. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. It was a clear, beautiful day as the father peered in the direction of the path that led to and from his home. He had looked in that same direction as his son left for the unknown. Many times the father hoped he'd see his son returning. Agony and rejection, rejected love in the father's heart never diminished since the horrible day when his youngest left with one-third of the family inheritance. He knew his son was to, to learn some very hard lessons of life, and that broke his heart. Today was just another day to look hard with wavering hope of what he so longed to see. Over the days, weeks, months, and now years, he had gazed down the road time and time again. Turning to go, he was startled to think that perhaps he saw an imperceptible image in the far distance. Uncertain, he turned away thinking, probably not. But something told him to turn around again and fix his eyes on the figure that he thought he saw. This time, he was ever more aware of something or someone on the road. If so, was it going away or was it coming toward him? At this point, he was unable to distinguish. Straining and waiting for some confirmation, he intently fixed his eyes on whatever or whoever it was. Was he just fooling himself into thinking it might be his son? Time was needed for the image to either get smaller or larger. He waited for what seemed like an eternity. The image was getting bigger. It was coming toward him. Who was it? He was not aware of any guest expected that day. Wait, wait a second. He saw a familiar walk, a certain gait he knew well. 
but it had been years. He was, he was, it was exactly how his son used to walk when his son was going out to the field to work. Could it be? Was it his beloved, wayward son? The one who had so deeply hurt him? The one whom he had forgiven and longed to be with again? Uncertainty gave way to huge joy, hope, and a flood of emotions. So long he had hoped for this moment. Now convinced, the father was overwhelmed with joy. With absolute certainty, the father abandoned all doubt and took off running, full tilt, as fast as an older man could carry him. The encounter was without words. So much was communicated at the time that words were inadequate. The clear display of the father's heart said it all. He sensed the stench of swine, but it didn't matter. His son was in his arms. Holding tightly, the father hugged and kissed his son. The son he loved and longed to be with was now in his arms, and tears were flowing. I wrote that because I wanted to try and get for myself and for you a picture of what was going on in the father's heart Day after day, as he looked down that path, would he be back? Some commentators say it was somewhere between three and five years. I don't know how they arrived at that, but that's a long time. I've known others personally that the time was longer, where they had lost contact with someone that they loved so greatly. I also wrote it because I know that any time in a group like this, there are those that also have sons or daughters or friends or family that they're longing would come back not only to themselves, but also to know the God who loves them so much, the Father that loves them. I attended years ago a concert here locally where Benny Hester performed a powerful song that pointedly referred to the prodigal son. Perhaps you'll remember it, When God Rang. It's there on the board. It says, He ran to me, he took me in his arms, held my head to his chest, said, My sons, come home again. He lifted my face, wiped the tears from my eyes. With forgiveness in his voice, he said, Son, do you know I still love you? Anybody remember the song? Okay. I remember the song. Must be age. In the notes, the father ran to reach his son quickly before any others. The father ran. In the Middle East, a man never ran. Because to run, it would require that he'd hold up his long tunic so that his legs would be able to move rapidly. Well, the problem was that men didn't show their legs. Kind of different than today, right? But they didn't show their legs. It was a shame to do that. But the father ran. It was humiliating and shameful for him to run. But he ran as soon as he knew it was his son. Why did he run? Well... I came across something that I hadn't heard of before, and I wanted to share that with you. And uh, a writer named Kenneth Bailey uh, wrote the following, and it's here on the board uh, for you. He said, First century Jewish custom dictated that if a Jewish boy lost the family inheritance among Gentiles and dared to return home, the community would break a large pot in front of him and cry out, So-and-so is cut off. From his people. This ceremony was called the Kizaza, literally the cutting off. After it was performed, the community would have nothing to do 
with a wayward person. By selling his inheritance and taking it with him, the prodigal takes a huge risk. If he loses the money among the Gentiles, he burns his bridges and has no way to return home. He has no more right to claim, and no one will take him in. In that discovery, then, the question is, well, why? The father ran. I believe he ran with this kizaza in mind. He knew, I can imagine him running out of the house, out of wherever, the path. His servants saw him, others saw him, but he wanted to get to the son first. He did not want the community patriarchs and elders to arrive there because they were prepared, if he ever came back, to break the clay pot and pronounce him cut off. The father loved his son. He did not want that to happen. And uh, I believe that it's an indication that rather than law, the father ran and gave him great grace. In this parable, only the father had the ability and the right to restore the son. If, if the kazaza had taken place, he couldn't have done that. But he reached him first. And so I've often wondered why he ran. Is this perhaps a, an additional story as to the possibility of why he ran? And uh, today, our Lord is looking for us in a similar way. And he is with open arms waiting for us to come to him. What is the turning point in the story? Uh, perhaps, you know, this is a very familiar parable. A lot of us think, oh, the turning point, oh, it's when he came to himself. And he thought, I, I'll make my plan, and I'll go back. Maybe it was hunger that pushed him that way. Maybe he was tired of working with pigs. Everything was bad, and, and he made up a plan. His plan was, I'm going to go to my father, and I'm going to say, I'll be a servant. Because he knew, as Bill already expressed, his loving father, the kind of person he was. And the Lord put him in circumstances. His heart responds to his father's love in, with, and compassion with repentance. I believe the turning point of the story is where he's held in his father's arms and all of his plans, that long path that he traveled coming back, saying over and over again what he was going to tell the father, how he was going to explain, what he was going to say, I'm willing to be your servant, that all got pushed aside when the father embraced him and hugged him. And I believe that is where he repented. Luke 15, 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He was expecting rejection. Instead, he received grace and sonship, returned sonship. How the father responded or reacted reminds me of a a book that's meant a lot to me and actually life-changed me. It was called uh, True Faced, or today a, a different uh, rendition, a red edition of it is called The Cure. And in there, one of the authors writes a thing that he calls the New Testament gamble, where, where God is presenting the New Testament gamble. Let me read it to you. God says, what if I tell them who they are? What if I take away any element of fear and condemnation, judgment, or rejection? What if I tell them I love them, will always love them, that I love them right now, no matter what they've done, as much as I love my only son, that there's nothing they can do to make my love go away? What if I tell them there are no lists? What if I tell them I don't keep a log of past offenses, of how little they pray, 
how often they've let me down, made promises they don't keep? What if I tell them they are righteous with my righteousness right now? What if I tell them they can stop beating up, beating themselves up, that they can stop being so formal, stiff, and jumpy around me? What if I tell them I'm crazy about them? What if I tell them even if they run to the ends of the earth and do the most horrible, unthinkable things, that when they come back, I'd receive them with tears and a party. What a beautiful glimpse into the Heavenly Father's heart, his heart of love and compassion. In the notes, the compassionate father restored the father-son relationship immediately. There was no delay. Luke 15, 22 through 20, 24. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and now is found. So they began to celebrate. I find it so interesting. He cut off the son and he said, quick. But the father said, quick, bring a robe. The father presented, in, in your notes, so the father presented the son with five gifts. We don't want to just take a quick look at them. The first one, the robe, the sign of royalty, his position as son is restored. That's what the father could do, and he did that. He gives him a ring, a sign of great affection, and also of authority. He's now back with the authority of a son in the household. And then the sandals, a sign that it was not to be, he was not to be treated as a servant, but rather as a son with all the entitlements. And then the killed calf, symbolic of sin forgiven. And then the feast, celebration, a party. And the dead son is alive and the lost is found. And so he had a celebration. And celebrate they did. Everyone. Almost. So now Jesus introduces us to the other character, the older son. I'm going to start reading at verse 25. I think we don't have slides for this, but just listen. Luke 15, 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and he pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, after all these years, I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. can feel the emotion. The son was in the field. 
He was doing the right thing. He was a good and faithful son. He honored his father. He, he says, never disobeyed your orders. He was doing the work his father asked him to do. He was a reputable guy with a great reputation. And yet this reaction and this interaction shows that something was going on in the son's heart. He didn't get the father's heart. So when the older brother, when the younger brother then, he becomes very angry and he refuses to go in. Where does this anger come from? Anger is a secondary emotion. What's going on? He doesn't deserve the party. He deserves to get what's coming to him. The older son wants justice. He wants justice, and that's in your notes. You can hear him yelling, it isn't fair. The father's extravagant, some call it reckless love, expressed towards this younger son with the party and the gifts is unprecedented, and it's unacceptable to the older son. He wanted justice, not grace. And so his father goes out, he pleads with him, come inside, we're not told exactly, we're given no window into that interaction. But then when the son responds to his father's pleading, it just says, he just goes off and says, I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed you. You've never given me a party with my friends. And what the older son wants is recognition. That's in your notes. He wants recognition. He wants what he's done, his, his life. He wants it to be recognized by his father. I relate to the older son. You know, we know the father's love. And, and so we kind of look differently at the story. But can you imagine being the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, and even the sinners listening to this story? Everybody's relating to that older son and just wanting, just angry at this father's response. You know, Jesus' main beef, one of them, with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law throughout his teaching and ministry was that they wanted recognition. When he teaches his disciples to pray, he says, don't be like those people who want to be seen. When he teaches them to give, when he teaches them to fast, don't do it to be seen. And then late in Jesus' ministry, when he's just tearing into all these things that the religious people get wrong, he says in Matthew 23, verse 5, everything they do is done for people to see. And so this is the picture of this older son. Like the Pharisees, here's an observation the older son was lost in morality. While the younger son was a sinner lost in immorality, the older son was lost, and he was lost in morality. Now that kind of boggles our mind because we know that morality is good. God created his moral laws, and, and we should obey them. <laughs> but when we are moral because we want recognition, 
it could cause us to really miss the Father's heart. It could cause us to look down on people who are immoral. And that's what's happening with the Pharisees. They were grumbling because Jesus was hanging out with sinners. This is a helpful way for me to understand self-righteousness and to see it in my own life. I was in a class through Talbot Seminary and and Dr. Coe was my professor and and he's talking about how we struggle with sin and he says the sin of immorality. I'm like, yeah, I, I see that. And then he talks about the sin of morality and it it floored me because I realized, oh my word, I struggle with that. I can look down on people who are sinners and I can think I'm better. The sin of morality is devastating because in the same way that immorality keeps us from the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus, our self-righteousness can keep us from it, him as well. And that's what we see in this story. The Pharisees were rejecting him. And Jesus wants them to be with him. Love, when I was a, a kid and I was raised just wonderfully by my parents just to know and to follow Jesus. But if you were to say, what's, what is the purpose of your faith in high school? I would have said it's, it's to be good, to be a good example, to do right, to honor God. And those are all good things. But now if you were to say, what's your primary purpose as a follower of Jesus? I would say love is the primary purpose, not doing good, knowing the love of my father and letting that love motivate me to be good and letting that love motivate me to love the sinner. That's the primary purpose of our faith. It's the father's purpose for me and it's the father's purpose for all who profess to know and follow him. I'd like to conclude my part and then we'll hand it off to dad for the father's response to the older son. I just want you to see this. The older son, because of his self-righteous morality, didn't see himself as a son. What did he say to the father? I've slaved for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. Isn't that interesting? He sees himself as his father's slave, not as his beloved son. And then look at the younger son, right? When he's stuck in this unrighteousness, he's far from home. What is he going to tell his father? I'm not worthy to be called your son. Treat me as your servant. So both of these sons don't understand the father's heart, right? They're both being kept from the father. They don't understand the nature of their sonship. And worse yet, They don't understand the unfailing love and amazing grace of their father. The younger son comes home. He repents. He receives the father's love and and his party and everything. But the older son refuses to come home, to come into the house. But the father is not done pleading with him. As he returns, he hears a party. He hears music and singing. What's up with that? When he finds out, he refuses to go in. Reminiscent of the father, the father's love for his sons, he ran to the younger son, and he goes to the older son. And when he gets there, he reminds him of his love, 
by calling him my son. But the older son seems to be resentful and jealous and angry. Does he see the father as preventing him from having fun? Did he see his younger brother go away and think, what fun he must be having? All I do is work here. Was that perhaps why he's resentful? I don't know for sure. But I often think as Christians sometimes, we can get so bogged down with everything we're doing that we fail, as Bill has mentioned, to see the Father's heart and the Father's love. And sometimes we look at others, and I know this happens, both by experience in my life as well as younger people and different ages of people, they begin to get envious at the unrighteous and they begin to say, they're having all the fun and I'm not having fun. Well, they're missing out. Do not ever be envious of anyone who appears to be having fun by ignoring God's instructions because it is only temporal. Just like the prodigal son discovered And he found out that it was temporal. And he got into the distress of going back. In contrast to the older son, as a lifer, was this older older son lost while still at home? As a teenager, I remember I was about 17 or 18 years old. And in those days, we used to have youth events. And so there'd be special meetings where there'd be a special speaker and the speaker that was coming would be advertised uh, of his past, and it would say something like, come here, such and such a person, converted alcoholic, drug addict, womanizer. It began to trouble me, so I was 18, 17, 18 years old, and I went to my pastor, who was significantly older than I was, and I asked him a question, to have an effective testimony in ministry, do I have to wallow in the gutter first? Because all the speakers that were coming were kind of indicating that you got a waller so you could be effective. And they were advertised that way. Any of you understand that? And so I, older pastor, he said, you do not have to wallow in the gutter. I've been living for and growing in the grace of our Lord for over 55 years. Walk with him. And I would just encourage anybody, younger, older, wherever you are, it just isn't worth it. Know the Father. Walk with him. In the notes, the Father reminds his older son of his sonship. Verses 31, 32. My son, the Father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because your, this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found Perhaps you noticed in verse 30 when the older son was speaking to the father regarding the younger son, he used the words, he said, this son of yours. He did not say my brother. He said this son of yours. Maybe some of you uh, can remember, or maybe it happens recently, where something is said and there's two parents there and they say, this son of yours did that. This, this daughter of yours did that. That's a little bit of what's happening here. He didn't want to have anything to do with his younger brother. Not a good situation uh, for a family. It's a form of elitism or perhaps placing yourself above others or unloading responsibility or blaming. We live in a blame culture today, this son of yours. But the father immediately comes back in verse 31 by addressing the older son. He says, my son, no doubt, my son, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. 
And then also, he sets the record straight and he says, he also gently reminds him, this brother of yours, this brother of yours, our Father, our Heavenly Father, loves to set the record straight. In the notes, the celebration was not optional. When a sinner repents, there's rejoicing in heaven. For the second time, the Father uses the identical same words. This son, your brother, who was as good as, as dead, is alive. He was lost, but he's found. And we're talking about the celebration that was just not optional. Do you remember the uh, shepherd who lost his sheep? What happened when he found it? It says in 15.6, it says, He calls his friends and neighbors to rejoice with him. How about the lady when she found her coin? What did she do? She calls her friends and neighbors to rejoice with her. So the son, the father says, Lost brother, we had to celebrate. We must party. We must rejoice. It is not optional. And by the way, some of the guests in attendance at that party at that time were most likely the community uh, patriarchs and the elders, the ones that were getting ready to perform the Kizaza ceremony. But now, the father had brought him back as son with full rights to being a son and not a servant. And so those men were in attendance at that time. In the end, what did the son decide? Did, did he attend the party? Scripture doesn't tell us. So now what? For the day is come home, come home to the Father's loving embrace and celebrate the joy of forgiveness. When I look at this picture that's behind me, I just think the embrace of the Father holding his son, that's such a beautiful picture of where God wants us to live if you're his son or you're his daughter. And as I was thinking about the hearers of this story then and now, there really is, there are just two places you can be at the end of this story. You're either in the house celebrating with the Father, enjoying and being in intimate relationship with Him, or you're outside of the house. Maybe you're the, you see yourself a little bit more, I'm just in this unrighteous stage, I'm, I'm stuck. And you're far, you're far from home. Or you may see yourself of, I have this self-righteousness that keeps me from the Father's grace, both the experience of it and the giving of it to others. You're not home if you're not in the house. And so I just want to close just reminding you that if you're in the house, it's the best place to be. Celebrate that, that you have received that Father's embrace. You can live in that knowledge of full forgiveness, full acceptance of his perfect love. And out of that, you can give to others. And then God teaches us to love sinners out of how he loves us. So stay in that house. Stay in the house and celebrate his forgiveness. But if you're outside of the house, this is what God wants he doesn't want you separate from him. Repentance is what we're talking about. And repentance, the Bible says, is for the forgiveness of sins. And what repentance does is it restores a relationship. And that's what God wants for every person that he's made. And that's what he wants for you. 
And so I want to encourage you this morning, you find yourself far from the Father or just outside the house, repent. Let the Father hold you and remind you of his grace and his love. And one of the easy ways to do that is to just admit that you're a sinner, that you're far from God, to rely on that grace, believe that that's what Jesus offered. The scripture says that Christ died for our sins to bring us to God. While we were still sinners, it says, Christ died for us. That's how we know what love is. If you believe that, turn towards Jesus in that faith, and you're, you're, in, you're in the house. And then choose to live your lives in that forgiveness and in that embrace. He'll never let you go. Even when you sin, he's there just saying, come back. My grace is bigger than that. I'm here for you. So let's close. My dad's going to close in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, our loving Father, our compassionate Father, our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you so filled and aware of your love, Lord. But even when we find we're discovering new levels, there are levels that go way beyond that of how much you love us and care for us. And Lord, as we speak today on this Father's Day, we know that, Lord, there are those here that have a good thought about fathers and those that don't. We know, Lord, that you want to be their Heavenly Father. You want them to know and experience your your compassionate and gracious love. And so, Father, we pray that the things that were said would be um, not only an encouragement, but a change in the lives of those who are here. Lord, I know that there are probably some here that are like the prodigal and others like the older brother. And I ask, Father God, that you would just bless them with your grace to move them in the direction of knowing you as their loving, compassionate, and gracious Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to share these thoughts that are your thoughts from your great word, your living word. In Christ's name we give you thanks. Amen.